Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Judith Heron for a conversation about the former Byzantine Empress, Irene, a woman that lived in the 8th and 9th centuries, and Dr. Heron joins the show to speak about who Irene was and the life she lived. Dr. Heron is a visiting research fellow and professor emerita in the Department of Classics at King's College London, based in the UK. She's the author of several books over her career, including a couple examples. Byzantium, The Surprising Life of a Medieval Empire, which was published by Princeton University Press, and Unrivaled Influence, Women and Empire in Byzantium, which was also published by Princeton University Press. Welcome to the call, Judith. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. Um, so let's start with a more broad contextual type question to start the conversation and then we can get into the details. If you were to uh, summarize who Irene was, what would you say? Irene was a very unknown young girl plucked from the provinces of the empire to become the wife of the prince uh, emperor elect Leo the, who became Leo the, the, the fourth. So she was chosen as a bride, but we really don't know very much about her background or why she was chosen. And we have to guess that there were reasons why Constantinople wished at that point, and the ruling emperor Constantine V wished in the 760s to connect uh, with an, a family in the area of Athens, which is where Irene, Irini in Greek, where she came from. And she was sent to Constantinople. She was married to the crown prince, and eventually he became emperor, and then she ruled as his wife and therefore empress of Byzantium. And so her life then began in a completely different uh, imperial fashion in which she was uh, became a dominant figure. And after the birth of her only son, also called Constantine, uh, uh, her husband died, and then uh, she became regent for her young son, and that embarked her on a position of rulership in which, which she must have enjoyed, because she clung to it right through into the early ninth century before she was overthrown in a coup and sent off into exile in a monastery. Uh, and later died in 803. So she only just gets into the ninth century. But that's a, an extraordinary life and very uh, in, interesting, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what what is it about um, when contemporaries speak about and we look and we look back on historical figures? A lot of times there there isn't a lot of. Uh, uh, writings that are left over in the in the records. So you said there's not not a lot known about the early period of her life. Why do you speculate that is? Well, very few Byzantine historians write much about empresses who come from outside the empire, unless they do something extraordinary, which Irene did. So we shall find her commented on and uh, made the topic of many, many discussions when she becomes empress. But basically, the early life of these of these young, very young women, teenagers, who became 
Byzantine princesses by marriage, uh, we know very little about their training, about their, their preparation. And as I say, we must presume that the ruling emperor wanted very much to have this particular family connected to Constantinople, probably because there was not very much imperial control in central Greece at the time. Uh, you may remember that the uh, this area of, of Greece, the whole area of the Balkans, had been overrun by Slavonic tribes. And so there was a, a loss of control. And although imperial governors were sent to specific areas and military campaigns were were directed against the Slavonic tribes, they became very well established. And they must have been established all around Athens, uh, as well as in the Peloponnese. So we don't know very much about what was going on there. And I su suppose that Constantine V, as the ruler, wished to enhance imperial control by linking his family with one in central Greece, somewhere near Athens or in Athens, where uh, a, a, some uh, important influential people had a modicum of control or had their own way of imposing imperial law. That was very important. And of course, imperial taxation, because as soon as the emperor has control of an area, he can tax it and he, he then uses the money to defend it. So that's a, a reason why he possibly sent out scouts to central Greece and said, find us a good looking young female who is healthy and will come and marry my son and bring us this connection with a family that will impose imperial control and follow our rule. So I think that's all we can say about how she, how she was selected and then put on a boat and sailed to Constantinople, the beginning of her career. Okay. Um, can you create uh, more background than Judith for someone listening and saying, okay, so she's born, she was born in Athens. Um, Athens today is, um, falls within the, the country of Greece in modern day terms. Um, we're talking about the, uh, the Byzantium empire here. Can you, can you take a moment and, and just, um, speak more about the, uh, uh, Byzantine Empire, and in this period of time, what their land uh, would have been demarcated to? Right. So the, 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 the Byzantine Empire represented the eastern half of the Roman Empire, but it had been very severely depleted by the Arab invasions of the 7th century, in which it lost control of Egypt, Syria, Palestine, all of the Eastern Mediterranean, and uh, eventually North Africa, uh, as the Arabs moved across the Mediterranean world into Spain. So the arrival of Islam was a major, major setback for the Eastern half of the Roman Empire that we call Byzantium. But the emperors of the 8th century had reversed that decline and were insisting on the defense of what remained. Now, what remained was all, was basically Asia Minor, that's the area of modern Turkey, uh, parts of Thrace, but not very much of the Balkans and not very much of actual Greece as Greece is today. As I said, there were very uh, um, constant pressures 
on the uh, area of the Balkans and Greece from Slavonic tribes who crossed the Danube in the late 6th century and penetrated down as far as the southern Peloponnese and even took to the sea in their, in their uh, sort of canoes and conquered some of the islands of the Aegean and were a complete menace to the empire, which could not sustain its control. Areas uh, in the, uh, on the extreme west of Greece, the Ionian regions, were uh, still maintained. Uh, they were, Constantinople had control over them and over the island of Sicily and large parts of central uh, and southern Italy. But in, the, in mainland Greece, uh, there was a severe loss of control. And as I say, I think that the Emperor Constantine V very much wanted to increase and enhance what control he could in central Greece, and that this marriage was one way of doing it. So the other very important thing to note is that these um, emperors, Constantine V and his father, Leo III, have been called the iconoclast emperors because they introduced this, this prohibition of the veneration of icons. And the battle over icon veneration was to extend right through the 8th and into the first half of the 9th century. It, I think it was a very major battle that engaged a lot of, of ordinary people as well as generals and administrators. But of course, if the emperors decreed that icon veneration was a uh, it was against the second commandment, it was it was the it was the worship of, of idols uh, and man-made created objects. Um, and therefore it had to be curbed. Uh, they, they were undoubtedly engaged in a, in a battle again, uh, with the forces that not only cherished their icons, but believed that in venerating the holy people represented on icons, Christ, his mother, the mother of God, uh, the saints and holy people, they were actually communicating with the divine and their prayers were answered by these uh, through these images, which gave them access to uh, um, the, the to heavenly people with great powers. So there was a really serious conflict going on in this period when Irene was chosen as the bride for the Prince uh, Leo IV. Okay. And to understand the, uh, the geopolitical di uh, dynamics, and, and thank you for expanding on the demarcation more, um, uh, Judith. So to understand the geopolitical dynamics more, you you met uh, you mentioned I think you might have said the uh, the term the the, the caliphate. Um, what what caliphate would have been ruling at that point in time? At this very point in time, there was a a major civil war in the Arab world, and the uh, Umayyad dynasty in Damascus was overthrown, and the Arabs had set up their new capital in Baghdad in the 760s, precisely at this very time when uh, the, the Byzantine emperor was trying to reassert his own control over Greece. So there was a, a, a very severe uh, disruption in the Arab world. Uh, the Islamic world was split between supporters of the Umayyads and supporters of the Abbasids. But basically, the whole focus in the East Mediterranean was shifted from Syria to Iran and uh, Iraq and Baghdad became the 
new capital and was built as a great capital city uh, by the Abbasids uh, who ruled over a very, very large area of the Eastern Mediterranean and Egypt and further and further east because they were um, uh, using the Persian Gulf to, to extend to, the, to India and further east. Uh, whereas the Umayyad uh, uh, dynasty was concentrated in Spain and, and was to remain an outpost of the old uh, caliphate that had been in Damascus. I'm sorry, that's not very clear. Oh, oh yeah, no. yeah, 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 go ahead. Yeah. Was able to take advantage of the civil war in the Islamic world to extend his own control. Okay, yeah, and I've, um, a couple weeks ago, uh, Dr. Alejandro Garcia San Juan of the University of Huelva was on the show and spoke about uh, one of the surviving members of the Umayyad uh, Caliphate, uh, uh, Rahman the, the first, making his way into the Iberia Peninsula and founding the Emirate of C Cordoba. So, so that was a more detailed um, uh, whole episode uh, de dedicated to that that actual event. And part of that was the uh, the, the, the the change in uh, in government in uh, the a Arab um, territories. Okay, so. Um, so we're going to work our way into her um, meeting Leo and marrying and her and her her career, etc. But before we get there, I want to uh, wrap up with a couple questions on what's known, if anything, of the early period of her life. So in hindsight, do scholars know any anything about her parents, anything about the type of family that she would have come from in terms of if they were aristocratic, if they uh, weren't aristocratic, etc.? Hard to tell, but we do know that uh, later in her reign, she identified uh, a family called Tesseracontis, Tesseracontapechis, 40 pieces, as, par as relations of hers. And they were resident in uh, somewhere near Athens. Uh, and they appear to have been her, her relatives that she could call on or that she, relate, that she knew to be, um, she knew she was related to. Now, whether her parents had that same name, 40 pieces, um, um, or were, um, it became a, a, a tag later, um, who knows. But it seems to me very likely that her father would have been somebody who, A, supported the iconoclast policies of the Emperor Constantine V, and B, was known as a supporter of imperial control against the Slavs, against all comers who were trying to take, uh, to take over provinces of the Byzantine Empire and uh, make them and settle there and take them away from uh, the, the control of Constantinople. So there must have been some sort of negotiation, some sort of linkage with her family. And I guess that uh, she certainly showed in her later life such character that I guess she must have been pretty well educated. Now, that doesn't mean very much for girls in the 8th century, because most young girls are taught that uh, weaving and uh, making cloth and then uh, making clothing and dealing with domestic activity is their role. They are entirely supportive of their husbands and, um, and families. They don't have a separate individual uh, capacity that's much uh, in encouraged. But certainly she must have known uh, a, a 
good deal of, of Greek uh, literature. She would have been an Orthodox Christian and therefore taken to church and heard the Psalms sung and learnt them probably by heart. She would have known all the gospel stories and a lot of Old Testament stories. So she would have had a good Christian formation. And I suppose coming from Greece, she probably knew quite a lot of the stories of, from Homer of the ancient gods and goddesses and the War of Troy and things like that that were uh, myths, perhaps, but very, very alive in Byzantine literature of the time because they were constantly referred to and reworked. So with this smattering of, of intellectual preparation, as I say, she was probably a young teenager. Girls could be married as late as, as, as early as 12 years old, and uh, her husband was probably not much older. So they were kids, and they, were, they lived in the palace in, the, in their own quarters with their own servants, while uh, the Emperor Constantine continued uh, to rule but he was, he was already elderly and getting on in years. And in 775, he died of a, of a wound that he in, in, uh, received in battle. And his son, Leo, became the emperor as Leo IV. He too was quite young, but he, was, he had been trained. He had been prepared for his imperial role. And so I guess Irene was probably trained a little bit in the, in the court in Constantinople for the role that she would play as the empress. Okay. How old then? So let's, let's talk about their marriage. So how old would uh, Irene have been and how old would uh, Leo have been at that point in time? And when they did get married, was Leo at that point uh, the emperor of Byzantium? No, no. Um, uh, uh, this marriage was arranged when they were teenagers. And I, uh, I can't remember now when Leo was born, but he must have been, what, 15 or something like that. And she was about 13. So they were, um, she was brought to, the, to Constantinople. She was uh, received. We read that the senators and officials from the city of Constantinople went down to the port to greet her because she was the new new princess that had been sent from, from Athens and she'd arrived by ship at Constantinople. So she was duly greeted and taken to the great palace where she must have been introduced to her future husband and prepared for the marriage that took place, I imagine, quite quickly. Um, they were a very young couple and it, it was only uh, a year and a half later that they produced their first and only child, uh, a son, Constantine. Uh, and it was in the, that was in the uh, 769. So there was a period when uh, she and her husband were resident in the great palace and the old emperor, Constantine, was still ruling, was still uh, going on campaign and sometimes Leo went with him so he was being prepared for his role as, as an emperor military skills were absolutely critical so there was a there was a period of about six years uh, in which they uh, brought up their son and the old emperor continued to rule mm -hmm. and when he died in 775 Leo his son was the uh, heir who succeeded to his father and he was then acclaimed and installed and the younger couple then moved into the ruling 
couples, uh, family that their uh, families uh, accommodation, which was even grander, where they had their own servants and their own staff and enormous numbers of people to look after their wardrobes, their jewels, their crowns, all these uh, elements of the regalia, which uh, were attached only to the person who was ruling the emperor, uh, empire and his wife. So they, in 775, they progressed from a rather junior emperor position to the senior ruling emperor and empress, and they moved into those quarters and, uh, and took over. Okay, so the, by that point in time, and I'm doing, I'm trying to do quick math in my, in my head. So would uh, Leo have been around uh, 21 years old when he became emperor? And would um, Irene have been around 18 or 19 when she became empress? Um, I'm sorry that I haven't got the dates in my head, but in fact, Leo may have been a bit older because he was the child of the first marriage of Constantine the fifth. Uh, and so he may have been born in the 750s and therefore have been a bit older than I uh, indicated. But certainly, Irene was uh, was certainly not more than 18. And so she became empress as, at what we would regard a very young age for somebody who has such an important role, uh, maybe more ritualistic and more uh, visual than uh, politically significant. But she was to make it politically significant through her own initiatives. Um, so she may have been quite a bit younger than Leo, um, and he had been designated as the emperor-elect by his father, who then uh, who had married, married twice more, two more times since uh, his first wife died. And he had, by his third marriage, had five sons who all wanted to be emperor. They had been barred uh, from that role, but they were always ambitious. And so there was a rivalry between Leo and his half-brothers and they were uh, a constant threat to him. Um, but he dealt with that. Uh, and as I say, he had been nominated by his father as his heir, and he duly acceded to imperial power. Okay, so by this point in time, you mentioned she's, she had a son. Um, can you speak more about her adulthood and what's known about her career and uh, as being uh, empress of the Byzantine em Empire? The first notable thing about uh, Empress Irene is that her husband, when her husband died after ruling for only five years in 780, she simply assumed that she would play a very major role in the period of her son's min minority because Constantine, her son, was only nine years old in 780. So she assumed the position of the sort of empress regent and she was obliged to consult with other officials in the court, the patriarch, probably the leading generals, people who were looking after Leo's uh, son Constantine and helping to educate him so that in due course he would inherit his father's uh, position and become emperor. But at nine years old, he certainly couldn't. And so she took over a dominating role and she was determined, obviously from the beginning, to play this very influential role, not only in training him for his position, but in 
bossing him around and in organizing the government to, uh, to suit her, to suit her own ideas. And we can see this very clearly in her determination to put an end to the iconoclast policy of her father-in-law and of the dynasty. It had actually identified the dynasty uh, established in the early eighth century. So she brought an end, put an end to iconoclasm. She said, we must refer, go back to the veneration of, of, of images. And she organized that process by changing the patriarch, getting rid of an iconoclast patriarch and putting in one of her own uh, chosen servants who happened to be a, a, a secular man, uh, Tarasios, but very educated, uh, a good candidate for patriarch, but he had to be rather rushed through the um, ecclesiastical ranks in order to get to the top uh, and to become patriarch of Constantinople, sort of archbishop metropolitan and then together they planned a council that would reverse the policy of iconoclasm that would say it's no longer appropriate to destroy these images or remove icons because they are not idolatrous these are not idols they are methods of communicating with the divine and we think they are perfectly valid and they must be restored to their honored position in the church and this took some time and they had a very false start in 786 when the council was broken up by loyal iconoclast bishops but in due course um, they were successful and in 787 she and her son constantine uh, attended uh, the final session of a council which had effectively reversed iconoclasm and reinstated the icons that i think must be laid partly at uh, at her door, she undoubtedly supported this policy. She took an initiative to change the patriarch so that she could make sure it would uh, happen. And she then in insisted that it should happen even after a, a disastrous uh, first meeting, at which she failed. So there was certainly a determination there, which I can I think is a mark of how she did, which she was ruling during her son's minority. Okay, so this is uh, what sounds like a very important policy during her career. I want to spend a little bit more time on the iconoclasm uh, topic. Um, so what was it with the, with her predecessors? Um, what was the concern around the actual idols at, at, at that time? Were, were these uh, nor, like were these idols that, had the purpose of uh, of worship in a Christian context, or were these idols um, uh, not? Uh, they were antagonistic to Christian worship. Can you expand a little bit more on on what the actual concern about certain idols were? Yes, the whole controversy about the use of icons and by icons i mean christian icons icons representing christ the virgin mother of god the saints holy people bishops monks uh, many many holy people had been uh, portrayed on wooden plaques which are all frescoes or mosaics which dis which showed them as holy people who were then venerated by uh, people who were indebted to them, who wished to thank them for uh, helping them with problems, with listening to their difficulties, 
providing solutions, or if they were the very uh, divine uh, Christ and his mother and saints, those who'd, uh, who, who felt that their prayers had been answered uh, by when they'd addressed their prayers to these Christian images. So these are icons in the sense that we understand today. Byzantine icons are those very beautiful icons that you find in every Orthodox church, and they are kissed and candles are lit in front of them because they are they represent holiness and they represent a way of communicating with the holy. Idols was the term that they preserved for the pagan gods, the pagan idols, the statues, Aphrodite or Zeus or any of the other gods and goddesses which still littered the uh, imperial world. The Roman world had been full of them, not all of them had been taken down. And clearly there were still people who believed that uh, possibly burning a little incense to one of these idols could bring you a, a, a better life or answer a problem or find a solution to some difficulty, cure your, your child who was ill or whatever. But these were idols and idolatry was what was condemned by the second command. Uh, of the Ten Commandments, the second says is that thou shalt make thyself no uh, man-made images, uh, nor shall you bow down in front of them because I am a jealous God and there shall be no images. But the uh, Christians argued that uh, the, that commandment was not, uh, did not refer to images of Christ, the son of God, nor to his mother, the holy mother of God, nor to the saints who had come in the Christian epoch of the New Testament after the revelation of Christ's uh, earthly life and uh, death and resurrection. So they believed that they were venerating icons that were legitimate and the iconoclasts said, no, these are, uh, these are in effect man-made idols like pagan idols and we must get rid of them because they only lead to idolatry, which is the crime, the sin that uh, we must not uh, commit because we will instill divine displeasure if we do. So was it all idols that had a uh, divination um, context to them or one, or idols that were not Christian? It was, no, it, the iconoclasts saw all the icons as manifestations, variations of the whole problem of idol manufacture. So they said in order not to fall into the trap of idolatry, which is a terrible sin, we must remove all these uh, images, all the, all the holy icons that the Christians celebrated, and of course, all those idols which were still uh, lying around. It, it seems very unlikely that in the eighth century, there were groups of, of people who were devotees of the goddess Aphrodite, very, very unlikely. But at the same time, there were holy springs where there were holy waters and there were uh, particular areas which were said to be um, um, miraculous or to where mirac miracles occurred. So there were overtones of the old world of idolatry, uh, which the iconoclasts said were equally, equally dangerous. And they tried to reform the church by saying, actually, Christians should worship in spirit and in truth. And Constantine V wrote in, 
uh, actual treatises and about this saying the true image of Christ is not this visualization that we see on icons which are painted by artists in paint and on, on ordinary wood they're not holy at all the true image of Christ is what we see in the Eucharist when the the, the bread and the wine is miraculously transformed into the body and blood of Christ. That was the true image of Christ for the iconoclasts. And you can see that is a very sophisticated argument about how to venerate Christ and to worship Christ uh, in a way that is not idolatrous. Hmm. Okay, so what's known about Judith um her foreign policy as regent how was she responding because you mentioned earlier there were a lot of tensions um with other um uh governments that surrounded um the byzantine empire is anything known about what her uh, foreign policy was during that period of time she appears to have inherited a whole range of military fi figures appointed to uh, run military campaigns and to govern the provinces of the Byzantine Empire. And she maintained most of these generals and uh, they were instructed to carry on the good work that they'd been doing against the enemies of Byzantium uh, in their own capacity with their own troops. She doesn't appear to have made a, a, a major change of any sort. Uh, Leo uh, the, the Fourth had run some quite successful campaigns and his generals would, were uh, maintained in office and were told to continue defending the empire. So there's not very much change there. The, the, to my mind, the interesting thing is that she didn't sack all the iconoclasts because she wanted to change the religious policy. She said, even if you're an iconoclast governor of a province, if you've been efficient and, com and competent, and if you are keeping that province safe and defending its borders and bringing in its taxes and maintaining its bridges and roads so that we can, we can uh, move troops when necessary to the frontier on different campaigns, that's good. You, you just stay and do your duty. So she doesn't appear to have come in with a policy which was to make huge changes. She, she seems to have inherited a functioning system, a functioning administration. And it's very interesting that because the bureaucracy of the Roman tradition was so well developed and recruited such uh, efficient administrators, basically, the cogs of the empire continued to, to click and taxation came in and soldiers were paid and the generals defended the empire as best they could. So there was no major change. And even as she was uh, an empress regent uh, looking after the sort of caretaking the administration while her son uh, grew to his majority, uh, she was not criticized. And indeed, the Council of Regency, there must have been a whole group of people who met regularly to ensure that the government did proceed in a normal fashion. They seem to have just continued to work as they had done under her husband. And uh, that was a very strong tradition, which meant that there, was, there were forces to use 
that could be just re-employed all constantly in a re regular turnover of competent men sent out to govern the provinces to defend the borders of the empire and then when necessary to make a campaign against Slavs in, in the Balkans, Arabs uh, in Syria uh, or the East, and that these campaigns continued. The one significant difficulty that uh, um, actually it occurred earlier under Constantine V was that the control of northern Italy had fallen to the Lombards and there was nothing that, 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 that Constantinople could do about that. Okay, thank you for expanding on that. Okay, um, so what happens next in her life that you feel is important as we're going through somewhat chronologically through her life? The next important stage is that her, her son, Constantine, uh, bridles against his mother's control and says, I am now of an age to rule in my own right. Uh, will you leave me to get on with it because I am the emperor? He's been acclaimed, he's been installed, he wears the crown, he commands his own servants, his own generals, his own he has his own ideas. He doesn't want his mother to be constantly um, standing in and saying, um, I and my son think this, or I and my son declare that. So he take, in 790, he determines to take over and he tells her to go away. And in fact, he insists that she remain in her palace in Constantinople, not the great palace where he rules, but in a palace that she had built uh, called the Eleftherios, where she had her own little court, where she had her own supporters, and she uh, was effectively imprisoned there so that he could take over and he could exercise uh, his powers as emperor. And in the course of his um, uh, early years, he tried very hard to impress the military with his skills, to make changes, to insert his own authority, to uh, assert himself. And he was not very successful. And in, in only two years, after two years, Irene was back in the great palace advising him, constantly trying to um, make sure that he did the right thing, stop him making mistakes, stop him quarrelling with people. But it was a very difficult task because he had irritated the generals through um, risky and not very well thought out strat military strategies. And then he enraged the ecclesiastical uh, authorities by wanting to divorce his wife. And that's a little um, extra that I should have dealt with because in due even before 790, okay. well before, Irene had arranged his marriage. That was what his mother should do. That's what empresses did. And she did it in a very interesting way by sending out lots of people to look for suitable young girls to marry to her son. In the same way that she had been brought from Athens, she wanted to bring in uh, an outsider, somebody who was not part of the Constantinopolitan elite, not one of the aristocratic families based in the capital. She wanted to bring in an alliance with a provincial family that would enhance her strength and support her own position. And she found, or her ambassadors, when they went round the empire, found a very suitable young girl in Paphlagonia, a, a, a young woman called Maria, and they brought her to Constantinople, and there was some sort of show, um, 
not just Maria, but all the other the, all the other suitable young ladies who'd been selected, um, who were all said to be very beautiful. And Constantine was invited to choose one who would be his wife. This is not, it's, it's a very, very odd setup. And it's called the Byzantine Bride Show. And some people don't believe that it ever happened. But the very interesting thing is that after Maria's successful uh, winning of the bride show and marriage to Constantine, her, her rivals and her sisters were also married to very important figures. And there was clearly a great deal of support for her family because her parents moved to Constantinople and were accommodated in a magnificent palace. And there was a great deal of support for the family from Amnia. And uh, Maria of Amnia became the empress, the young empress, the junior empress with um, uh, Constantine while he was still a minor. Irene oversaw all this process and undoubtedly must have trained Maria in the role that she would uh, inherit when she became the senior empress. This was a repetition of Irene's own training and own preparation for the role that she then that she now held. So that marriage ha had been put together by his mother. And when Constantine repudiated it, because he said he didn't love Maria and oh, she was trying to poison him. This he had to claim because it was only an effort to kill the emperor by poison that could permit her him to divorce a wife. And despite the fact that this was not proven, he sent her off to a monastery with her two daughters, his two daughters, and Irene's, Irene's granddaughters. And they were sent off to a, a, a nunnery where they were confined, uh, and he then chose to marry another woman, Theodote, whom he selected for himself. But of course, that provoked the uh, ecclesiastical establishment to great uh, anxiety and rage because a second marriage uh, on that basis was illegitimate and adulterous. Uh, so because his first wife was still alive and she hadn't been correctly divorced or properly divorced uh, according to ecclesiastical rules. So Constantine found himself very unpopular both with the military and with the church and that was a point at which his mother realized that she could come back. She could make a comeback and she therefore reasserted her powers. And this is the beginning of her aim to rule alone, which is the most astonishing thing that she achieved in the last five years of her life. Do you think that, because um, a lot of what you shared there, it seemed like she was really practicing customs of, the, of those times. She was regent. She was grooming her son to be emperor. Um, he became emperor. Uh, she participated in helping him find a wife. Do you think that um, she was always planning to become empress again? Um, or, or was it a change of circumstances? And uh, in what you described there, he became very unpopular. There's probably some other stuff. And she felt the need that um, she needed to reassert herself. What, and this might be an, you know, might take an interpretive answer, but what do you think about that? It's very difficult to tell, but you must uh, remember that for about 10 years from the time when her father-in-law died and therefore she became the empress and her husband became emperor in 780, 
until about 790. She had been uh, a very major player in the in the court in Constantinople. Constantine was young, he was inexperienced, he still needed to be trained and educated, and he had to learn, you know, a, a lot uh, about imperial administration, and then all the military skills that were necessary, and how to handle diplomatic relations, and all the history of the empire, which uh, she seems to have been uh, able to handle uh, Perhaps just she'd had longer being exposed to how the court worked and how these things were done. But certainly she'd had about a decade of, in effect, ruling for her son. And I'm sure that gave her a taste for power. Whether she had intended regularly as a constant to keep that power and to maintain it, even if it meant... uh, um, humiliating her son, I'm not sure. It's very, very hard to tell because there is absolutely no uh, evidence for her own ideas, except in a certain number of indirect ways where we can see, uh, for example, she issued two laws, um, which are rather curious. She used certain seals, she promoted certain officials, so we can see her handling of administrative matters and her capacity without really knowing what she was thinking she was thinking and of course being a woman of authority she provoked a good deal of uh different opinions some uh contemporaries were very much in favor of her because she was a good iconophile venerator of images who had restored the icons to their honored place and permitted everybody to make uh, make their veneration to images as they had before. So her move against the iconoclasts was very much supported by some people, mainly the church, mainly the monks, um, but and the icon painters, of course, who've been done out of jobs while the iconoclasm was uh, official. But there may have been other ways in which she had uh, developed skills and ambitions that we we can't we can only guess at uh, as I say if she kept a diary or if we'd had other uh, more 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 local contemporary references to her as an individual we might be able to um, come to a closer definition of what she was actually thinking but sadly it's very difficult. <laughs> Yeah, and probably most people aren't writing down all, all their ambitions in a in a journal either, no. which makes it difficult, no. <laughs> whether in in history or or presently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Okay, so Constantine, her son, still in the picture. Can you speak about um, how she becomes uh, sole uh, empress, and uh, and then the the and then work our way to the later period of her life? Right. This is the this is the grisly moment at which she decides that she has to actually remove her son from his position as emperor, and there is a very um, straightforward way of doing that, which is to mutilate him in such a fashion that he cannot rule. And this is the very important feature of uh, imperial power in Byzantium, 
which is that you have to be a whole person. You have to have all your facilities, all your faculties to rule. And so she orders for him to be um, taken prisoner and blinded. And once an emperor has lost his sight, he's no longer considered a whole person and he cannot be emperor. And of course, it is very difficult for uh, someone who's been blinded to continue to rule in the same capacity that they had before they were when they were they had their sight. But it's specifically designed to remove him from power. And indeed, it, it, it effectively removed, takes him out of the great palace. He retires to a a smaller palace where he's looked after by his second wife, this lady that he married illegally, Theodote, and uh, Irene is uh, able to take over. She has engineered the removal of her son, and she and they and and she has uh, and she her son only has two daughters who are imprisoned in a nunnery, and she is the obvious person to take over. She has the experience. She's been an empress regent. Now she's going to be the empress on her own. So from 797 to 802, period of five years, she rules. And she also uses the title emperor. This is clear from her, her laws, these two laws that are issued in her name. And it's partly, they, they, they use the, term, the masculine form emperor because only the emperor can make laws. And so they don't want to say this is the empress making a law. They say this is the emperor making a law. And in fact, it's Irene who's doing it. So she's responsible for these two laws. One is, again, is, is about the swearing of oaths and how these are things which are done in front of God and must be observed. And the other is about third marriages, which is directed against her father-in-law and the claims of these sons that he had by his third wife because his third marriage produced five sons who all want to be emperor and make a great deal of, and they cause a great deal of nuisance. They're constantly running, uh, leading revol revolts and rebellions and trying to get themselves into the great palace and to overthrow Constantine the sixth while he's in charge, and then later to overthrow Irene when she's in charge. So in these laws, she's addressed as, as emperor and uh, but on her coins, she presents herself as Empress, as Lisa, and she does uh, pre present in this five-year period, she puts her own image on both sides of the coins. And that I think is a very interesting way of saying, I am indeed in charge, I am the Empress Irene, uh, this is the coinage that you've, you're used to, you use it, the gold coinage, you use it uh, um, every, not every day, but it's used to pay soldiers, it's used in major transactions and taxes, and this is the image that was circulated around the Byzantine Empire. So she's making a claim for her own position as the ruler, and she sustains it for five years, which is not bad. Do scholars then when you look look back and you analyze all the evidence, do scholars consider her an emperor, a former emperor of the Byzantine Empire? No, they always call her empress, and they <laughs> and and usually historians are not very much not very interested in what Irene is trying to do. They say she's very dependent on her generals and her her personal servants, and some of these are eunuchs from the court who are these castrated males who have no claim on family ties 
and can be relied upon to look after empresses. So she has devoted servants and she uses them to maintain her authority. She's also responsible for quite a lot of building and she builds uh, poor houses for the poor, uh, hospices and hospitals and hospitals for the sick. There's a, a xenotaftion, which is a, 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 a cemetery for foreigners who die in Constantinople so that they can be properly buried. Uh, if they're not Christian, of course, they can't be in the Christian cemetery. But these are ways in which she invests in Constantinople's uh, infrastructure and looks after people. And she's also uh, responsible for a major initiative, which I think must come from her. When she sends an embassy to, con to Charles, King of the Franks, later to be known as Charlemagne, suggesting that they should have a marriage of convenience and reunite the eastern and the western parts of the Roman Empire. And this is really quite something. It doesn't work, but it is, it is a, one of those might have been questions. Wouldn't things have been different had they uh, reunited uh, the power of Charles, King of the Franks, with Irene, Empress of Byzantium? Uh, but that was a was a, a plan that mm. her finance minister, Nikiforos, would not uh, uh, accept. And so he led a revolt against her in 802. And as I say, he removed her and from power and got himself acclaimed emperor. Uh, so he usurped her authority and sent her off into a monastic prison where she later died. Okay. And I want to um, clarify... Um, uh, for my for my sake, uh, uh, so the, who who was the um, person that ended up overthrowing her in in office? What was his name? He was called Nikiforos, and he was the finance minister. So he'd been one of her servants in charge of the treasury, a very responsible role. He undoubtedly witnessed her. Um, rather lavish gifts to monks and monasteries, and he may have disapproved of that. He does appear to have been rather a, an efficient administrator. He was a, a secular administrator, a bureaucrat. He kept good records. He understood finance. And his rule is quite, is quite, it's quite interesting um, that he's now understood to have been quite a, quite a, quite an interesting ruler. But he did usurp the imperial power uh, with an internal coup that uh, he led against Irene not only because she was a woman, but also because uh, undoubtedly he felt and his supporters felt that the empire should be ruled by a man. It was quite, quite unusual for a woman to be in charge without remarrying, without bringing a, a consort uh, to uh, be emperor beside her. Um, so the empress, uh, her five-year rule is really an anomaly, very, very strange. Okay, yeah, and I wanted to uh, double check to see if there was a connection with Constantine V's uh, children, but it sounds like there wasn't there with Nico Nicophorus. Um, okay, and how old was she when she died? Oh, she can't have been that old. Um, Approximately. Thirties. Um, I mean, you know, the life expectancy was very, very low in in these times. So she was not. She was by no means an old woman. Uh, but of course, she had had a very, very exciting life, and it may have aged her somewhat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
it's been uh, very nice speaking with you today, Judah. Thank you for coming on the show and uh, speaking more about who Irene was in the life that she lived. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. So again, everybody, the couple of books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Heron wrote as examples, Byzantium, The Surprising Life of a Medieval Empire, and Unrivaled Influence, Women and Empire in Byzantium. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Judith and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.